Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met before, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name's Tom, and I lead the team here at Hope Church. And we're going to be starting a new series of messages today uh, from the Bible book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And uh, we've been through the Old Testament quite a bit this year. We had Exodus at the beginning of this year. We've had a whole summer in the Psalms. And so it's been quite an Old Testament year in many respects. Uh, next year, God willing, we, 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 we're planning to enter into a series in the Gospel of John from uh, late January onwards, which we are really looking forward to. And there'll be more, I think, New Testament next year. But we're in Nehemiah today. The context of the book of Nehemiah is... Uh, it, uh, the events in this book took place about 450 years before Christ. And the nation of Israel really, or Judah as it was more widely known then, is in big trouble. They have, the people have left behind um, the, the, the commands of God and have gone after idols. They've gone after things that ultimately were not God. And they've been harmed as they've gone after those things really. And God has allowed them to be taken over as a nation by the surrounding nations. And many, many people have been taken off into exile. They've been taken off as slaves for these wealthy, powerful nations around them. And as we're going to see in a moment, there'll be some, it seems, that have managed to escape that or have managed to avoid it entirely. They remain in the nation, but the once glorious city of Jerusalem, the, the, the capital and the spiritual heartland of the nation, lies in ruin. Now, you need to understand that Israel was supposed to be, for the nations around them, a, a shining light. The nations around them were supposed to look upon Israel and see God's wisdom on display. They were to, supposed to see God's blessing upon the nation. And so it was an absolute disaster that the people of God had left behind his commands, had gone after other things, and their nation had been overtaken by foreign armies. It's an absolute disaster. And the best and brightest of the nation have been taken away to other nations. So we're going to pick up right at the beginning of Nehemiah. And we're going to read the whole of chapter 1. This is what it says. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you, scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, 
I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. That's how chapter one ends. We get a glimpse into the life and the job that Nehemiah had. He's in a foreign land and cupbearer to the king. Now, as Christians here in the West, we can find ourselves in quite a lot of comfort at times. That might seem a strange thing to say, but we do find ourselves often in a place of kind of being lulled into the kinds of lulled into a kind of comfort and a, and, a, and a sleepiness that kind of goes with our nation or goes with the culture. We, even though um, more and more people uh, no longer identify as Christian, even though the values that maybe go with our faith are not being held and treasured and they're being squeezed to the margins of what is acceptable more and more, even though, as I've pointed out to us, thousands and thousands of people in our town don't know the hope of Jesus and who are uh, living lives that are just chasing after stuff that will let them down again and again and again, even though these things are true, we can find ourselves kind of lulled into a comfort. Even though the Bible tells us we're in a spiritual battle with an enemy, a spiritual enemy who hates us and who's out to tear us down, we can find ourselves kind of hiding away from the reality of what's going on in our streets, in our schools, in our families even. We can kind of just try and pretend it's all not happening and end up in a comfortable place. We can kind of hide away from confrontation, like try to go under the radar. Hopefully people don't ask me any difficult questions and maybe I'll just play some worship music as I'm driving and my life doesn't look much different to those around. I might pray here and there, but I'm just trying to kind of get on and trying to keep my head uh, from just, just keep my head below the parapet, as it were. Just don't want to get into any confrontation. We can fall into comfort. We can to be totally turned off to what is happening around us. We can be turned off even to the plight of the church in our nation, which more and more is just walking away from God's word. Saying, well, it might say that, but actually we don't really believe that anymore where churches are increasingly dwindling because they don't look any different to the world around. They're not distinct. So people think, why do I bother going to that? It's just saying what I hear on Sunday morning TV. It's much more comfortable in bed. We can be turned off even to the plight of churches that may even look like ours, where things can creep in that are ugly and are not of God's word. We can be kind of nonchalant about the church and think, I don't really care what's happening. We can kind of be in this place of comfort. It can creep in if we're not careful. And Nehemiah, it seems, was in quite a comfortable place when some news came to him from his brother that hit him right between the eyes. It says Nehemiah's cupbearer to the king, and sometimes we kind of think, well, that just means a waiter. That's not a particularly comfortable job. Maybe he's scraping around for the money. No, no, cupbearer, history tells us, and indeed this story tells us, was a very, very highly esteemed role 
which would have granted Nehemiah access to the most powerful man in the nation. And one of the most powerful men in the world at the time, he would have had the ear of the king. In fact, as we're going to see, he does have the ear of the king. And he would have had a lot of material wealth. Whatever he wanted, he would have had access to. And God, through Nehemiah's brother, came with some news that really stirred Nehemiah from his comfort. And maybe today we're going to be stirred from our comfort. Maybe that's what God will do today. This is what happens to him. So what happens to Nehemiah. He's got all this privilege. Even as a Jewish man in exile, he's still in a place of great privilege. And then he gets this news and he's stirred. He's woken up. He kind of sees again afresh the reality of the situation. I wonder where you're at today. I wonder where you uh, find yourself today. Do you relate to what I'm saying? Do you feel like, actually, yeah, I'm living in comfort, quite honestly. I'm just kind of going through the motions. And my life doesn't look very distinct from those around me in my workplace or in my social groups. I just kind of just wanted to go under the radar. And I'm not really bothered within by the plight of the church. I'm not really bothered within of the plight of the nation. I'm I'm not really bothered about it. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're kind of like, yeah, I've just been lulled into a sleep in some way. Nehemiah received a reality check. He hears that Jerusalem's walls are in ruins. He hears that for him, the most significant place in the whole earth is laid to to waste. And he, he, he begins to weep and he begins to mourn and he begins to fast even. I don't know about you, you might think, what is all that about? If I, heard, if I lived in Spain, if I was living in Spain and I heard that Big Ben had fallen down, I might be a bit upset and I might think, oh, we've lost a, we've lost a really nice bit of London. But I wouldn't weep and mourn for days. I wouldn't start fasting. I wouldn't be like so troubled within that I would be unable to sleep. This wouldn't do that to me. Well, you have to understand that Jerusalem, as I said, held such a significance for the people of Israel. It was such a significant place. It wasn't just the capital city, but it was the center of their religious life. It was the center of their identity. They would have traveled to Jerusalem, uh, not uh, just to work, but to go there for big festivals. It was a big deal for them. And so it was to hear of its ruin. It would have caused Nehemiah great distress. It was a source of great sorrow for him. The the city's walls protected the the second temple that had been built. And the the temple was the the place of, uh, the center of worship in the the community. Ensuring that the temple survived meant that the, the, the ritual kind of sacrifices that were undertaken on behalf of God's people could continue. This was central to who they were. And this is why it's It's grabbed Nehemiah's heart. This is why it's gripped him. He's deeply troubled by the news. And one of the the problems we have, friends, is that we are so oversaturated by bad news, aren't we? There was some awful news yesterday of an earthquake with thousands dead. And it's like we hear that every week. We're so oversaturated that we're unmoved by some things. We're unmoved as we kind of go, we're oversaturated by what we see on the news or on social media, but we're oversaturated even as we walk through the streets sometimes. And we see 
the addictions on display. Addictions to shopping, getting more and more stuff. Addictions to the approval of others. I want people to think I'm fit or whatever and like me and people getting up at all times of the day to kind of get the perfect body. Addictions to substances. It's just so apparent. But we're so, we're so unmoved by these things sometimes because we're so oversaturated. Just kind of like again and again, there's just bad news wherever we look. And I believe that God wants to help us in this to have the compassion for our town and for our neighborhoods that he has for our town and its neighborhoods. That we wouldn't be just so bombarded with all this stuff that we're just unmoved by it, but that he would help us to, even in this oversaturated world, to have compassion. Jesus had compassion. It wasn't just Nehemiah who wept over the state of Jerusalem. 480 odd years later, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, his final week before he's crucified. And he looks upon the city and he weeps. You read about it in the book of Luke. He weeps. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps because he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is the heart of God. Jesus fully, perfectly displays the heart of God. So if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. And he, he came not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And so his heart is not looking over the people and looking over them in condemnatory judgment, but actually with compassion and sorrow that they are like sheep without a shepherd, who he wants to gather in. He so wants to gather them. He says in, uh, in John's gospel, in that parallel account, he says, I want to gather you in like a mother hen gathers in her chicks. I've so, this is my heart. This is my heart for the city of Jerusalem, Jesus said. This is his heart for the people of Ipswich. He wants to gather them in as a mother hen gathers in her chicks. I want them, is what Jesus is saying. This is the beating heart, friends, of our church. Because we want to have the heart of Jesus. Jesus wants those people. He wants the people who are in addiction to all kinds of things. He wants many, many, many people to come under his wings. To come to know him, to come to know faith in him, joy in him, security in him, hope in him. This is what the heart of God is, friends. And so as his people, we don't look upon this town with judgment in our hearts. A Christian whose heart is regularly fired up by the grace of God cannot look upon people with a kind of cold judgment in their hearts. It can't be done. This is why it's so wonderful. As Tim reminded us last week of the gospel. We need this every day. Someone whose heart is regularly fired up by the warmth of the gospel cannot look upon others with judgment in their hearts. Just can't do it. Can't look upon them and say, How, they're disgusting. Can't tut at, you can't tut at people when your heart is fired up by the grace of God in your life. Because the grace of God in our life is not that we were just kind of naughty people that got good. Right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we were dead and God reached down into the pit and lifted us out. That's the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been revived. I haven't been. Maybe one or two of you have. Maybe someone's performed CPR on you. When you came round, you didn't say, I was receiving that really well, wasn't I? You know, that, that, that pumping on my chest, I was really doing well to contribute to that. No, you don't. It was all on the person that performed it upon you. And this is the gospel. It's a, a work of God. And so we must pray. 
And we must turn to God, friends. We have to be those that, like Nehemiah, looks upon the situation in all its reality and doesn't look upon our town with judgment and tut, but say, God, we need you to move. Because the work you've done in my life was nothing short of a miracle. It wasn't that I just suddenly turned over a new leaf. No, you revived me from spiritual death. And now I'm alive in Christ. This is the gospel. And this is why we've got to turn to God. This is why we can't, uh, in our own strength, make this happen. We can prepare. We can do some things like have two services. We can do some things like uh, administration, which is so key and vital. We can organize things, but we need God to come and move, don't we? We need to call upon him, who's the one who comes and changes hearts. When we see what it's going to take, we, we must turn to God. We must turn to him, just as Nehemiah does. Nehemiah fasts. This is such an interesting thing for us because, again, I think it's probably a, a Western thing for us. We don't do fasting much. I don't do fasting as much as I'd like. And I don't want to be saying that about myself in five years' time. I want to go on a journey with God in this. I want to get his heart. What's going on here when he fasts? Well, fasting is about weaning ourselves off of the comforts that we are afforded about focusing our hearts upon God, about calling out to him in desperation, leading into greater dependency on him. This is a big tool for us, and Nehemiah takes a hold of that tool. And after his mourning, after his weeping and his praying, uh, sorry, after his mourning and his weeping, Nehemiah turned to God in prayer. We might think that Nehemiah needed then to um, go and get on the road and get his kit together to go and help, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, these walls be rebuilt. But actually, Nehemiah turns to God in prayer. He didn't get to action straight away. And uh, I think this is such a key thing for us. If we're going to see a town transformed, if we're going to see a region won for Jesus, if we're going to see nation and nations won, then we must turn to God again and again and again. This has to be this has to be our heart. So if you're looking in at Hope Church, if you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to come on the next Getting Connected course, I want to explore what it means to be a part of this church, you have to understand this about us, is that we're going to keep coming back to big moments of prayer and getting before God in prayer. We, we cannot afford to lay down the weapon of prayer. We cannot afford to do that. This is who we are as a church. Prayer is key for us. This church looks to God. This church doesn't look to its own resources. This church looks to God. And may we never say we look to our own strength first. May we say always we look to God first. We mustn't lay down the weapon of prayer that God has given us in all of, all of our endeavors, in everything we do, every group that we have, every ministry that we put on, every time we, uh, we, we go, step out in faith in some ways, we mustn't lay down the weapon of prayer, Hope Church. We mustn't do it. R.A. Torrey, a a preacher from the beginning of the last century, he says this, the devil laughs softly at the church of today and says under his breath, you can have your Sunday schools, your social organizations, your grand choirs, and even your revival efforts, as long as you do not bring the power of Almighty God into them by earnest, persistent, and believing prayer. Hope Church, we can have a nice building with air conditioning. We can have nice sound systems. We can have the Encore Coffee House. We can have 
community lounge. We can have a great youth group. But if we don't bring into all of what we're doing the power of God by earnest, persistent, believing prayer, then it will achieve nothing. We'll see nothing happen. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Anything of ultimate, eternal significance, we cannot do if we don't call upon God and call upon his power in our church. So I want to just, in the, next, the last few minutes, look at Nehemiah's prayer here. We pick up a couple of things about prayer from this passage. Firstly, we see prayer appealing to the character of God. Prayer and the character of God is, if you're taking notes, Nehemiah begins by reminding himself and appealing to the character of God. He says, God of heaven. He begins praying to the God of heaven. Now, often in the Old Testament, heaven and skies are kind of used interchangeably. So Nehemiah would have looked out from this great castle or palace and the room that he had, and each night would have seen a beautiful sky before him. He would have seen the stars laid out, and in the morning he would have seen the sun rising and the beauty and expanse of it all, and he would have understood there's a mighty God behind all of this. There's an almighty one who's not to be messed with behind all of this. He's the God of the heavens. He created all of this. And without the, the, the benefit and the advantage of having the Hubble telescope to see distant galaxies, he understood something in those clear skies. There's a mighty God behind all of this. There's someone who is outrageously mighty. He's the God of heaven. He's the resourceful one. He's the one who's able to affect change. When we, when we appreciate and understand and our move. We need to let this move us, guys. We need to ask God, move us in, within. When we see the ruin, as it were, of our town, maybe even as you leave this place, why don't you just say under your breath, God, help me to be moved. Give me your eyes. Give me the eyes of Jesus as he looked upon Jerusalem. When we see this, we will say the God of heaven is our only hope. We'll say only the God of heaven can fix this. Sarah and I were walking through the town center late on Thursday night, and we were just looking at some of the hopelessness amongst those with, with, with substance addiction. And we were just, what? we can't fix this. I have no idea what to do. But the God of heaven can. He's the mighty one. Nehemiah recognized and he reminds himself of the power of God. I love that we're, we started singing this morning of God's might. He is sovereign over all, great and powerful, the Lord most high. We've got to sing songs of his power. We've got to, when we come to pray even tonight, we're going to begin with worship. And a few years ago, I remember someone spoke to Tim and said, why do you bother singing at the beginning of prayer meetings? We're here to pray, aren't we? And Tim had to remind him, well, firstly, worship is prayer. <laughs> it's a type of prayer. But secondly, we need to be absolutely uh, overwhelmed with a sense of God is, is the majestic one. He's the powerful one. We need to have our minds filled afresh and our faith rises as we come to that again. So as Nehemiah is praying, he's coming, God, you're the mighty one. There's something of the truth of who God is filling his heart and it's emboldening his prayer. We mustn't think that God has somehow lost his power because our nation has turned its back on God. We mustn't think that somehow some things have changed in God's character. He's still the same God. He's still the same God, and we can call upon him, the mighty one. He's not a mute, dull God. He's not to be underestimated. It's so important to effective prayer that we fill our minds with 
the character of God. We call it to mind. He's mighty. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's powerful. There's nothing too difficult for him. He's the one who speaks and planets appear. You imagine that. Mighty stars and planets just says appear and they appear. This is who our God is. He's the generous God. He's the God of super abundance. He's a God who's, there's, there's, he can't be uh, outgiven. He's the giving God. He's such a generous God. So as we pray even this evening, let's be those who call to mind God's character, just as Nehemiah does. Let's be those that say, God, this is who you are, and I'm appealing to your character. Let's look at what Nehemiah does here about the promises of God. We looked at the character of God, now the promises of God. It's with the promises of God that Nehemiah can argue his case before God. That doesn't sound very reverent, does it? For someone to say, you can argue your case before God. You can bring some things before God. You see that in the Old Testament. You see it with uh, Abraham. He appeals on behalf of a city. He says, if there's just a few righteous people here, Lord, would you spare that city? He, 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 he lays his case before God. Moses does the same. He lays his case before God, appealing to the promises of God. Nehemiah does it here. He's saying, Lord, you've said it. He says it in verse 8. He says, remember what you said to Moses. Remember what you said to Moses, Lord. If we turn back to you, even if we're scattered to the ends of the earth, you will bring them back. We can take the promises of God that we read of in the word, and we can bring them back to God in prayer. Do you understand that you've, you've got a right to do that? As children of God, you can bring these promises to God. Children don't, my children don't forget promises that I make them, unless they're promises they're not that keen on, okay? So for example, if I said to them, look, you've got homework to do before you can play, you've got, when we get home later on, you've got to do your homework, and then you can play, then you can watch TV. They will forget that promise very happily. That won't be a problem for them. Start playing. No, no, remember what I said. You've got to do your homework first before you can go and do that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But if I said to them, look, after football on Saturday, I'm going to buy everyone a donut, okay, even if just for a millisecond it looks like I've forgotten that promise, I will be reminded, Dad, you said that we were going to get donuts. And do you know what? I, when I'm reminded of that, I smile. I love it. I'm, I have this kind of just delight in my heart. They, they actually think I'm a man of my word. <laughs> and so they say, Dad, you, you, you said it. We're getting donuts, aren't we? You said it. So we've got to go and get donuts now. Listen, God loves it when we bring to him the promises that he's made to us. It shows that we trust that he's a man of his word, or a God of his word, as it were. That he is someone who will come through for what, for his people in terms of what he's said. He loves it when we come to him in this way. So this book, friends, is a massive manual of prayer with promises aplenty where we can say, God, you said this. And so I'm bringing this to you. I'm appealing to you because you said it. You have said, Lord, as we pray tonight, you've said, Lord, that the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of your glory. And so Lord, we're saying, Lord, in Ipswich, may it be true increasingly. That will be full of the knowledge of your glory. You've said it, Lord. You've said it that as we go forward, that you're going to work all things together for our good. Lord, you've said it. 
And so as we step out in new ways, as we believe you for multiple gatherings on Sundays, as we believe you for an expression of Hope Church in the Southwest, we can say, Lord, you've promised, because you haven't withheld your only son from us, you're going to give us everything else we need. You've promised it, Lord. You've said it. And I want to point to you this resource that will just uh, be linked to on the screen here, um, with the QR code, where you can, if you, if you can bring that up, Chrissy, you can... Um, just get, go to this uh, QR code here. Hopefully, it will, it will work smoothly. And on there, um, you can access a, a manual that's been put together by a really wonderful uh, Christian organization. And you can get a hold of a manual of the promises of God, where you can use these promises in your prayer times. Just a little indication. Is it working? Yeah. Yes, good. Praise God. Technology is good. Um, get a hold of that manual. Use it in your prayer times. And, and come to God in individual prayer times and corporate prayer times and say, God, you've said it, and so I'm believing you for this. We're laying hold, Martin Luther says, we're laying hold of God's willingness in prayer. This is something that we need to understand. We're laying hold of the God who is willing. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, he said, but laying hold of God's willingness. Friends, God is willing to bless his people. He wants us to come and lay a hold of him in prayer. So tonight, if you are able to, come and be here. This is the longest notice ever, okay? You don't understand that. This is a big notice about the prayer meeting tonight. Come and be here tonight. Come and worship with us. Pray with us. If you are unable to do that, and you categorically cannot be here, we're going to look to live stream the prayer meeting to our private Facebook group. Okay, so you need to find our community group on Facebook. Join it and it will be live streamed. There'll be a link you can click on, and you can join in from home. Don't have country file on in the background. Focus in on God, and, 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 and just go for it with prayer, in prayer with us. We really do believe God's going to move as we pray together. Just one more thing to point out. Nehemiah reminds God that the Israelites, the Israelites are his people. This is what he says. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He's saying, God, this is your idea. These are your people. Guys, we can do that together tonight. We can say, God, we are yours. This church is your idea. The church is your idea. We say, God, come and bless us. Come and bring us into uh, wonderful new things. Come and um, save many, Lord, through the work of our church. Come and move in our Alpha course. We can say, Lord, this is your people. We can appeal to him and say that to him. I'd love for us to stand together. The band, I think, will come and play. and Maybe we'll sing if there's time. But let's, let's just take a hold of this just for a moment, shall we? Take a hold of these things. We're going to hear more of the story next week. But let's just come to God together. Father, we thank you that you have not just forgiven our sins, not just made us right, but you've brought us into a family. And we thank you that we get to call the God of heaven, the mighty God of heaven, we get to call you Father. Thank you that that's the reality for us. It wasn't the case for Nehemiah. He didn't address you as Father. We get to call you Father. And we get to come before you now and say, Lord, we're desperate for you to move. Lord, we want you to come and move our hearts. We want you to come and break our hearts. We want you to come and uh, give us compassion for this world around us. And Lord, we want you to uh, give us a hunger that you would move afresh. We don't want to be in comfort. We want you to stir us now. 
Why don't you just say to God, stir me from my comfort, Lord. Stir me from my comfort. Lord, I want to be prayerful for my town. I want to see you moving, Lord, in my day. Just as you moved through Nehemiah and built something wonderful through he and his friends, Lord, would you come and do something wondrous in our day? In Jesus' name, would you stir us to be increasingly a people of prayer? Lord, that we'd call upon you. We'd take a hold of your promises. We'd realize who we are. We'd realize whose we are and call upon you. I pray that tonight would be a dynamic night where you'd rise faith in our hearts, that we'd find ourselves praying for things that we hadn't even planned to pray for, that you would guide us. And Lord, move amongst us in wonderful ways tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just as we're about to sing, listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to understand something about him. He is the ultimate Nehemiah. He's the one who was in the place of great comfort. He was in the place of glory. And he, so stirred by the plight of this world, entered in. He entered in, friends, not to restore some physical walls, but to restore our relationship with the God of heaven, to bring us in. And he did that by laying down his life on the cross at the age of 33, having lived a perfect life, having never put a foot wrong, having shown compassion to all who he met, he laid down his life. And this, the Bible says, was not an accident. It was the will of God that he would take upon himself our sin. He would take upon himself. He would wear our sin, wear our shame as we've sung this morning so that we might be restored to relationship with God, that we might one day know an eternal city and enter into it forever. And so even as we sing now in these last few minutes, if you don't know Jesus for yourself, you can know him today. There's nothing that you have to do to earn it. You have to receive. You have to say, Lord, I receive this mercy. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. Just receive this gift now. He'll come and he'll revive you. He'll bring you to new life. He'll cause you to be born again. It'll cause a, a, a new life to flow within you. So even as we sing, why don't you just give your life to him and tell someone, tell someone afterwards. We'd love to help you in your next steps. We want to baptize you. That would be a big next step for you. And we'll have baptisms in the weeks to come. God is real. He loves you. He's got much better for you than anything else you're chasing after. He will never let you down, friends. So even as we're singing now, let's do business with him. Let's enjoy him. Amen. Let's sing.